All right, let's uh, let's do some of those topics I start out uh, not wanting to address in segment one. Just kind of where this country's headed. Uh, we got about twelve or thirteen minutes here. Let's let's take a look at some of these things. Um, for starters, the White House is drafting a national security directive calling for weapons to be stationed in space for the first time. The Air Force is now asking for actual space-based weapons, both to supposedly protect U.S. satellites and hit targets on the ground. Among the proposed systems is a, quote, global strike, unquote, a space plane loaded with munitions that could reach any location on Earth in 45 minutes. Another known as Rods from God, and I'm not making this up, it's called Rods from God, would rain hundreds of of heavy tungsten cylinders at targets. They'd strike the ground at 7,200 miles an hour with the force of small nuclear bombs. This is a good use of taxpayer dollars, I think, don't you? You know, we don't we don't call it the War Department anymore. It's called the De- Defense Department. But what about rods from God dropping tungsten cylinders with the force of nuclear bombs is defensive. Well, where's the defense in that? Saner voices in the New York Times commented that, that we currently have a huge advantage in conventional forces that could be erased by an enemy weapon poised overhead. In fact, a multinational treaty banning space weapons would probably do more to preserve our supremacy than a unilateral drive to put the first weapons in space. We saw this coming when uh, in the first Bush term, we withdrew from the anti-ballistic missile treaty, which basically kept us from doing some of this insanity. We're going to try and bring Robert Bowman, an outspoken um, uh, authority on this subject of, of Star Wars and the insanity of it, onto this program. Uh, well, stay tuned for that. On a somewhat saner note, and I'm glad there are a few with the Bush administration, they're making noise about putting humans back on the moon by the year 2020. Of course, the questions are, what for? And uh, the answer is so that we might then proceed onward to Mars and develop some uh, possible energy-generating capabilities on the moon, maybe even some mining. These things are are possible. Uh, Last week in Washington, D.C., NASA announced a $250,000 prize for extracting oxygen from lunar regolith. The regolith on the moon, of course, is the uh, the powdery-like surface that forms from the constant rain of small meteorites that come in like uh, super son- super supersonic bullets without being slowed by the atmosphere. Um, of course, how you're going to extract oxygen from something you don't have is a bit of a problem, so they're using simulated lunar regolith based on... Uh, on a volcanic powder, I believe, from Arizona. We're going to need oxygen when we get there. We're also going to need hydrogen to make water. Uh, We think there may be some water up there. Um, This is actually, this is chump change. The amount of money we're going to spend going to the moon uh, is, is not a great deal. I think we should spend that money and think of it this way. Every dollar that goes toward lunar exploration and, you know, baking oxygen out of the lunar regolith is money that's not spent on rods from God. And speaking of Pentagon finances, um, you know, the Geneva Conventions bans mercenaries. So you may have noticed that over in Iraq, we don't use the term mercenaries. We call them contractors. And uh, in the Week magazine, June 3rd issue, there's quite an interesting briefing about the outsourcing of the business of war. I'd recommend that you, you, you read this. 
It's noted in brief uh, here that uh, freelance combat troops, uh, mercenaries, are forbidden. But if you sign up private security firms to feed and shelter troops, drive fuel trucks, guard bases, while you free up thousands of uniformed soldiers for frontline fighting. But private contractors are expensive. They charge up to $1,000 per man per day. Right now, we have 20,000 such contractors in Iraq at a cost so far of at least $30 billion. Who are these hired guns? Well, the top private security agents often have military training. Many are former Green Berets, Navy SEALs, or other Special Forces veterans. Some have said they were lured out of retirement out of patriotism after the September 11th attacks, while others openly admit they were attracted by the money. A private security agent working in Iraq can make more than $250,000 a year. Oh, and when these private contractors wind up in firefights and in combat, as they often do, you still don't call them mercenaries because mercenaries are banned by the Geneva Conventions. And uh, just north of Iraq in uh, Syria, the Syrian government has now cut off all contacts with the U.S. military and the CIA. Apparently, the Syrian ambassador said his government was angry about U.S. allegations that Syria was doing nothing to stop the flow of fighters, money, and equipment across the border into Iraq. And, uh, and uh, as Bush continues to criticize Syria, they thought, well, why should we continue to cooperate? This is probably a, a not a good thing for anyone, except perhaps Iraqi insurgents, uh, now, uh, now uh, more free to hang out in Syria. I want to thank uh, Jerry for an email a few weeks back noting that uh, Laura Bush, traveling over in the Middle East, had endorsed uh, President Mubarak's election plan in Egypt. Uh, Hosni Mubarak um, has planned, proposed to change the Egyptian constitution. He's been president for 24 straight years, by the way, so that it will allow an opposition party candidate to run against him. Of course, they're going to rig it so that the Congress gets to pick who the opposition party is. Uh, People, cynics over there are pointing out this is all, of course, designed to keep uh, Hosni Mubarak in, in power. Uh, Mrs. Bush's view was somewhat more cheery. She said, I would say that President Mubarak has taken a very bold step. He's taken the first step to open up the elections, and I think that's very, very important. Speaking to reporters in front of the Giza pyramids, Mrs. Bush noted that the United States democracy also took time to develop fully. Now, you know... I don't recall George Washington running for 24, being president for 24 straight years, so I'm a little unclear on some of these comparisons. But democracy is clearly on the march in the Middle East of, of some sort. And uh, two days ago, uh, Tony Blair, Prime Minister of the UK, joined President Bush in Washington, and the two men presented a united front against a recently disclosed British government memorandum that said in July 2002 that American intelligence was being, quote, fixed, unquote, around the policy of removing Saddam Hussein in Iraq. Bush said, there's nothing further from the truth. Look, both of us didn't want to use our military. Nobody wants to commit military to combat. It's the last option. Mr. Blair, standing at Mr. Bush's side, said, no, the facts were not being fixed in any shape or form at all. And if any of you out there buy this, buy this statement from the president and prime minister, I would suggest that you probably should try to confine yourself in the future to smoking cigarettes that have 
labels on them. Speaking of democracy on the march, Katherine Harris has thrown her hat into the ring for the senatorial race in the state of Florida. Katherine Harris, of course, distinguished herself in the year 2000 by preventing any recount from taking place in the state of Florida that would have shown that Al Gore actually won the state. Yes, I know a lot of you recall that there was a recount that took place in Florida, but you are in fact recalling something that really did not happen. They did run all the cards through the machines again as required by law, but no recount, no manual recount took place in Florida in the year 2000, thanks largely to the efforts of Katherine Harris. She now could become a U.S. Senator. No, and no, we don't have any confirmed reports that Hosni Mubarak has been consulting with Ms. Harris about the upcoming elections in Egypt. You know, I love the fact that over the last weekend, the White House went on the attack as regards this, uh, this Newsweek false reporting about the Korans in the toilet. There's a great cartoon. Uh, well, I can't read the signature, but it shows a George Bush in a toilet holding Newsweek saying, can you imagine what Newsweek has done to our image? <laughs> the toilet's labeled Iraq fiasco. As we told you on uh, last week's show, there's compelling evidence that the Koran was abused as part of psychological operations against uh, prisoners of uh, a Muslim extraction, and yet they're just claiming that, well, Newsweek got this wrong, and they're just pushing that to forward. Well, uh, we don't think Newsweek got it wrong. And yes, that's another one we're going to come back to. That story's not going away. Uh, we mentioned cigarettes a minute ago. Of course, uh, the Supreme Court, by a 63 margin, has decided that states cannot invalidate federal laws against medical marijuana. Dr. Philip Denny will be returning to this show uh, sometime next month to talk about uh, this development, this sad development, where um, <sighs> marijuana is going to remain in limbo. And here's one from yesterday's paper people are still shocked over. After, after eight months of courtroom arguments, Justice Department lawyers abruptly upset a landmark civil racketeering case against the tobacco industry by asking for less than 8% of the expected penalty. Justice Department lawyer Stephen Brody shocked tobacco company representatives and anti-tobacco activists alike by announcing the government would not seek the $130 billion that a government expert had testified was necessary to, fu to fund smoking cessation programs. Instead, they would ask tobacco companies to pay $10 billion over five years to help millions of Americans quit smoking. Tobacco kills 500,000 Americans a year. It's perfectly legal. You can get it in every liquor store across America. Marijuana... Well, find me, find me in the medical literature a known case, a known fatality brought about by the smoking of marijuana, okay? I'll, uh, I'll, I'll buy you a six-pack. I'll, bu I'll buy you a pack of smokes. And we are out of time, so our final item, <laughs> I love this one. White House aid revised global warming papers. A White House official who once led the oil industry's fight against limits on greenhouse gases has repeatedly edited government climate reports in ways that play down links between such emissions and global warming, according to internal documents. And I just, uh, we just got to end the show on that. I, I can't go on. We'll, uh, we'll be back next Thursday, hopefully with Lisa Pease. Um, 
longtime political writer to bring us up to date on what's going on in California with regards electronic voting. We will also try and take a walk down the hall to visit with the California Aggie and their editor-in-chief, Daniel Stone. Our thanks again to Dr. Konstantin Pleshikov, author of Stalin's Folly, for his uh, fascinating talk with us today. We'll be back next Thursday at 5 o'clock. This is Radio Parallax. I'm, I'm Douglas Everett. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. And now, as always, stay tuned for Todd. Stoner.